I'm an old woman now, with one foot in the grave and the other on its bank. Father Brendan Kilcoyne, coming to you again with the Brendan Option, courtesy of Maculata Productions. And we begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you're not Irish, you may be intrigued at the strange sounds with which I began, but those are the sounds of Irish, or as it's internationally known, Gaelic. And it's a quotation. I think probably people from my generation will recognise it, because we all had to study that book for the Leaving Certificate, the final examination at secondary level in, in Ireland. And the book was called Peg, which is the name of a woman, Peg Sayers. Peg Sayers was among the last people to live on Great Blasket, an island off the Kerry coast. I don't think anyone lives there now full time. I think the entire community migrated in in the 50s to the mainland. And she didn't write the book. Her brother and I think her son-in-law actually wrote it down. So like Socrates, it was a case of, well, I don't think Socrates dictated, but in any case, I think she did dictate. I think when she was in hospital, it's not really a work of literature, and I don't know that it should have been on as a, as a literary piece for our exam, but a few generations of Irish schoolchildren had to cope with Peg. And as the decades passed, because it was really more, I suppose, a kind of ideological document in the beginning, it was a chronicle of peasant life at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th. And as the decades passed, Successive generations found it harder to identify with it. And I'm afraid it probably created a strong association between the Irish language and poverty and a hard life, which was the folk memory of the past. It may have done the Irish language no great favours, which is a pity because Peg Sayers was a remarkable character. And the book is a remarkable social document. And so her life was a hard one. Her marriage, as was common at the time, in many places in Europe among the peasantry, her marriage was arranged. And indeed it was common among the aristocracy as well at the time. Her marriage was arranged. And her husband was from Blasco, she was from the mainland, and she went out with him. And she lived on this remote island. I'm fascinated by the liminality of her life. She was speaking Irish, a dying language in an increasingly English-speaking world and I mean the world of these islands and the English-speaking world generally, because America, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, all of these countries, and of course centrally the United Kingdom itself, had a huge place in our imagination. This was the bigger world, and it was the English-speaking world. So she was liminal in that sense. She was a borderline in that sense. And she was on the border in terms of the transition from one culture to another from the old peasantry into a modern age. And Liminal as well, and where she was living out on this island, on the very edge of Europe, ultimate tool, you might say, right, right out on the edge. And probably also in her peasant imagination, which was soaked in Christianity, soaked in Catholicism. It wasn't just the cliffs, and I think she may have lost one son off the cliffs in Blasket. It wasn't just the cliffs it wasn't only that, it was that in her Catholic and Irish imagination, she walked as my ancestors did, as so many of the peasantry did, as the visionaries at Knock did, and I've said this before, she walked easily between two worlds. 
Because the truth is that we live in that march land, march land, not marshland, it may be that too, but a march land in the old English sense of the word, the marches, the mering, the border, the border between the present and the future, the border between the finite and the infinite, between the physical and the metaphysical. She moved easily in that hard world, in that amazing world and sometimes frightening world. I think one of the most haunting pieces of folk music I've ever heard from Blasket, and it happened to be from Blasket, I heard it played on the concertina, and it's, it's a gothic air called Antausha, the ghost. And that will tell you something about the remarkable imaginative world in which these people lived. And that's us. We have one foot in the grave and the other on the bank. We live on that border. Now, I've talked about this before, but you cannot go back too often because that is where the church's business must be done. Those are the missions. That's the mission territory. And you have millions of people now in the Western world and in Ireland specifically living a life right on the edge of the grave, as Peg would have said. Absolutely, and to some extent, deliberately oblivious to how close to the edge they are and to the marked absence of support and foothold on the other side. And I think there was one other area in which Peg was liminal. It's very human, and the peasantry knew all about it. She suffered. She had a life of suffering, and suffering takes you right to the edge and sometimes beyond. Suffering takes you into Golgotha. Suffering takes you to the tomb. But without that, there is no resurrection. Before the time of Christ, the Greek playwright Aeschylus, in his great play The Agamemnon, has his chorus intone the remarkable line, we must suffer into truth. And elsewhere they say, we suffer and we learn. We must suffer into truth. We suffer and we learn. That centuries before Christ, although do keep in mind that when our Lord Jesus Christ appeared, and I regard this as the church always has us as entirely providential, Jewish culture had been Hellenized. It had become increasingly Greek for about 200 years before that. And so Greek concepts and Greek culture were present in Jewish culture. Okay, the significance of that, I mean, that's just a fascinating discussion. And we can look at it another time because St. Paul is often blamed, well, blamed or praised for having Hellenized a Jewish religion, Christianity, but it's much more complex than that. There was Greek influence there already. We must suffer into truth. And I think the great witness of this, and again I've said this before, the great witness of this in our age on YouTube and on social media is Jordan Peterson. Brilliantly erudite, clever, clinical psychologist, widely published, highly reputable, who looks into the camera with a ravaged face and piercing, suffering eyes, and he says, life is suffering, man. Life is suffering. I think that we have to go back to that and chew on it to understand what the church has to say to the modern age. Because I just want to say something to you. We think that because the DNA is cancelled out by a few hundred years of of so-called enlightenment, it isn't. The enlightenment has given us incredible benefits. It has also done terrible violence to our spiritual selves. It has done us a terrible violence to the extent that we're impoverished, we're poorer than our poor ancestors, and we're materially richer 
The most ordinary, per an unemployed person nowadays is better off in some regards, much better off than an aristocrat of 200 years ago. Warmer, better medicated, better fed, safer. All being equal. But in terms of the spiritual, in terms of a human wholeness, in terms of that sense of the liminality of existence, I think much poorer. Do we have any hope? Or are we going to, is this like the invasion of the body snatchers? You remember that 70s film? The, the 70s, they were very interested in all this stuff. It's where the human race is gradually taken over by a parasitic organism that takes over the brain of the host and they become automata, controlled by this alien organism. And one by one, the free range, if you like, the free human people start to diminish and diminish and diminish. So is there any future for us? Are our free-range days over? Is it that we have lost our God? In Nietzsche's term, we have killed God. And his blood stains the floorboards of the beautiful new houses that are being built all over Ireland. These huge houses. Have you noticed that nobody in Ireland now seems to build a small house? I'm not saying this to be obnoxious. I'm not getting at people. I'm just saying we don't seem to build small houses anymore. And we have smaller families than we've ever had. And on the beautifully stained hardboard floors of some of those houses is a deeper stain of the blood of God. And it's not the blood of Christ. No, no. It's the figuratively speaking, as Nietzsche meant it, the blood of God is that you, not that we have killed God, but we have killed God in the sense that we have killed our awareness of God, our belief in God. And its blood has stained the floors of our beautiful new homes. Our ancestors knew how to suffer. We're able to narcotize suffering. Suffering is managed with painkillers. Don't get me wrong again, I am a coward. I am the worst coward in the world. I run for the painkillers the first chance I get. I am no hero when it comes to that stuff. And yet pain may be our only hope is the interpretation of our suffering. Because in here, this is crucial, suffering hasn't stopped. In fact, do you know something? In some ways, in certain areas of human life, I think it may even have increased. One of the things I've become terribly aware of as a priest, and I was aware of it as a teacher, I became aware of it as a teacher, there are two privileged positions in terms of the access that people give you to their lives. You hear it as well from doctors, nurses, social workers, psychologists, guards especially. My goodness, people suffer. How people suffer. You see, we've become so good at hiding it, yeah? We've killed God and we've buried him and we've hidden the grave. And that's the case in each the human life of somebody who's lost their faith in the modern age. They can hardly find the grave anymore. They've hidden him so well. And beside him we've buried at least the public perception of our suffering. And so for instance, you have very serious problems with addiction. To an extent that nobody talks about, that's a middle-class problem. Those problems are middle-class. I wonder how aware we are of the gateway drugs. People talk of marijuana as a gateway drug, uh, and I've no trouble believing it. I've, the people I've heard saying that are very reputable. You know, it's a, it's a gateway drug. It may well have some good applications medicinally, but that would have to be under a lot of supervision because it can be a gateway drug to others. But what about wine as a gateway drug? Huge consumption of wine now in Ireland. The lockdown has added to it. And do you remember Simon and Garfunkel, the song, Here's to You, Mrs. Robinson? Do you remember that, Mrs. Robinson? About the carefully hidden 
addiction problem in a middle class area. It's a little secret, just the Robinsons affair. There's a huge crisis of relationships. I mean, as Luigi Giussani, the founder of Communion and Liberation said, we can build cities now on computers, but we don't know how to build a relationship that works. And the suffering that's coming from that, there's huge suffering coming from that. And I'll tell you something, one of the biggest, one of the biggest emotional and psychological killers in our society is betrayal. Is a sense of betrayal. Now we only know we tend to notice that when it comes to the big social crises, such as, for instance, the child abuse by priests and stuff like that. The terrific sense of sacrilege and betrayal, betrayal at the most profound level. But that betrayal is only one of the worst examples of a, an epidemic of betrayal, because there's a crisis of trust. And where you have a crisis of trust, as I once heard Baroness O'Neill, the philosopher, say this in a TED talk. There's very little point in going on about, oh, we don't trust enough, there's a crisis of trust. How do we learn to trust again? She said, you're quite right not to trust if you don't meet people who are trustworthy. Not trusting people straight off is a human survival mechanism, and a very useful one. You trust people who have been found trustworthy. There's no point talking about, oh, we, we have a crisis of trust, without adding as well, we need to become more trustworthy. We need to become people of our word, which is precisely what Peterson is constantly going on about. So in the middle of this suffering, in the middle of this godless suffering, and I mean godless, not as an insult, please, I'm not trying to offend you if you don't have faith. I don't mean godless as an insult. I mean it in the sense in which French Catholic journalist Charles Peggy writing over a hundred years ago, he died in the Battle of the Marne, writing over a hundred years ago, called the Society of France at that time as godless. And he said, it's not an insult, it is God-less. It is less God. God's not there. Now, obviously, we don't believe that God's not there. But if people have decided God's not there, if people don't feel God there, don't believe God there, that itself is seismic, because each of those people is in a sense a world. That's an absolute disaster. So what you have now is you have this terrific loneliness and this terrific sense of dissatisfaction, terrific sense of unfulfilled hopes and dreams because our expectations have skyrocketed in a society in which it is made to seem as if everything is possible. When, again, as Peterson keeps reminding us, everything isn't possible for most people. And it never has been. And it quite probably never will be, although perhaps it'll, we'll have more video games, they'll become more sophisticated, and it'll become easier to sort of, you know, spend hours and hours on a video game pretending that things you would have liked to achieve have been achieved, and that you have, you're a general, you're a politician, you're this, you're that, you're the other. But for an awful lot of us who realise we'll never drive to Paris with the wind blowing in our hair, this is cold comfort. I'm very struck when I'm out walking, which is as much as I manage these days, and I meet other people walking, or more, you know, more likely running, and they're there immured, immured, walled in, in their own world, in their own virtual world, with the earphones in, and a forbidding, don't mess with me look on their face. And I can't get over how unhappy many people look in our society. How unhappy they look this deliberate grimness. They have a face on them like a fortress, like the iron gate of a medieval castle. And by crikey, the boiling oil is ready if you try to get in. They truly look as if they've just met old Nietzsche in a pub 
and discovered in his words that all interpretations of the world are false. They've retreated into their own constructed world. And I, I seem to remember Richard Dawkins saying precisely that, that he was sick of people asking him, well, if there's no God, what about meaning? Well, he said, you can make your own meaning. So there you are. You can tell yourself your own stories. This is terribly dangerous because people cannot stand that forever. And if they don't turn back to God, you know, they used to say children with rickets scratch lime from the walls. You know, if you've got this deficiency, you try to scratch it from the walls without knowing what you're doing. They say calves being reared for the veal industry will frantically lick the iron bars of their cages because they're starved or they used to be starved of iron. I don't know if it's still done to get the meat white for the restaurant industry. You have these millions of people who are built, who are constitutively arranged for meaning, for a future, for purpose, for love, for interdependence. And they are victims of their own success. We have won. This is the terrifying thing. We have won. We have got to a stage where the individual, his own king in his own lonely castle on the crags, looking down on reality like one of those romantic portraits from the 19th century. Isn't there one by Caspar David Friedrich of your man in the frock coat looking down into the, into the abyss, into the terrifying ravine, with the mist and the fog? That's where you are. The individualist king, GDPR, child protection, you name it. I said was it the last one that the individual now commands the same uh, liturgical carefulness that the deity did in the past. And you must thunder sanctus, sanctus, sanctus at the individual. Human beings simply aren't made for that. And see, what's going to happen there? What's going to happen with all these deities? We're all like Caesar now. We've made ourselves into gods. What's going to happen with all these deities who aren't made for it and at their heart don't want it? You know, Chesterton said, you, you stop believing in something, you'll start believing in anything. This is a very dangerous time. Years and years ago, oh, back in the 20s, when pioneering social research was being done at the University of Chicago, an academic called James Thrasher did a famous study of boy gangs in Chicago. He documented something like, oh, I'd say close on about 1,200 of them. Some of them own clubs, they own property, everything. When I say boys, I mean, they were up into their early 20s, I think, you know, but from about 12 on up, you know, 11 or 12 on up. And what he, he described gang life as interstitial, meaning that it, it grows up in the interstices of societies. It grows up in the cracks in the social pavement because people have to belong, because people can stand the loneliness, because even very intelligent people who look down on those around them need other people and so sometimes are, are reduced to, the, in their own idea, in their own mind, to having to mix it with the mob, with hoi polloi, as the Greeks used to say, with the people. Sean O'Reardon, the Irish metaphysical poet, in the poem Circe, where he talks about the agonising loneliness up on the, figuratively up on the mountain of freedom. I'll go down, he said, among the people, and I'll go down tonight, because he's so lonely even though he implies that he despises them. This is a huge problem. People will take refuge in gangs, and the leaders of those gangs will be big brothers who have never grown up. That was how the psychologist Erickson described Hitler, the leader of a boy gang, an elder brother who's never grown up. You know, the elder brother who defends the family from the alcoholic father, 
Yeah. This, it's a huge danger. So the suffering that people are experiencing is perhaps the greatest danger of our time and yet also the most promising thing of our time because it keeps us human. At least we can still feel. If you're unhappy, at least you're still, you're still somehow in touch with reality. But there is a real sense of betrayal. The church has betrayed people. Government has betrayed people. The media are a disgrace at the moment. They're a disgrace in America and they're an even bigger disgrace here. They're little more than political lackeys and don't even seem to be able to see it. I think it was Anthony Powell, the novelist, described one character like many whose lives are episodic. He ended up by not being able to see the joins. So I don't think the media have seen the, the progress they've made, but they're essentially zombies at this stage in the grip of an ideology. So, like, what to do? What to do when you have this terrible success in modern individualism? All these kings and queens in, the, in their castles, this terrible loneliness, and the danger that that brings, that people will increasingly, at least some people, will seek release from the loneliness. Isn't it interesting that it was mostly middle-class kids who created such a stink in Europe and America in the 1960s and 68? I mean, the Italian Minister of the Interior apparently justified a harsh line with the demonstrators by saying that he would not permit the sons of the Roman bourgeoisie to throw stones at the sons of Sicilian peasants. The sons of the Roman bourgeoisie being the students, and the others being the carabinieri, the police, who mostly came from the south, ironically, because the students regard themselves as revolutionaries, as very left-wing. We're having the same thing now with Black Lives Matter, and we're assured that most of them are actually white, middle-class people who fold, in, in the words of Victor Davis Hanson, the academic, they fold the minute they're taken into a police station because they're terrified at the prospect of having a conviction on their records. That's how bourgeois they are. That's how middle-class they are. This is the trouble, hoi polloi, the people who are still in touch to some extent with the realities of life, who haven't gone up into the middle class ether and become too grand, forgive me for the crudity, but too grand to go to the loo, too cool to breathe. The people voted for Trump, the people voted for Johnson, the people voted for Brexit. You have this tremendous loneliness affects the people too, but I think it's at its most acute in the middle classes. I think you're looking, you're looking at a massive crisis in those who, who were before the leaders. You're looking at a terrible crisis in the middle classes. And they're desperately trying to get back in with the people. And I, the people don't want them. It's a strange time. I said that one of the great pains, one of the great sufferings of our age was the sense of betrayal. I, I would say perhaps a, a dominant sense of betrayal. Solzhenitsyn has a fantastic line about this, as he so often has. He says, in the camps, in the gulag, in the Stalinist camps, the lowest form of life was a ZEK, Z-E-K, which was an acronym for a, a political prisoner, right? For the Russian words for some kind of political prisoner, right? The ordinary criminals, uh, thieves, murderers, rapists, the like, they ran the camps to an extent. They were trustees for the guards. The ordinary prisoners were trusted by the regime more than its own people, former Communist Party members, whom it had accused of heresy. Does that strike any chord with nowadays? And so the Zek, the political prisoner, was the lowest form of life. And Solzhenitsyn has heartbreaking descriptions of phenomenally faithful party members who have been arrested and who remain convinced for years that any day now the mistake would be rectified. His comment? 
To say that things were painful for them is to say almost nothing. They did not know what they were doing here or how this could possibly be happening to them. I sense that pain a great deal in society. I meet it often. I'll tell you something. I meet it with people of faith when something terrible happens in their family. And it's totally understandable. It's heartbreaking. Who have devoted themselves to the faith and to God and then they're struck by, let's say, it's cancer or it's suicide or whatever it is happens in the family. And they're saying, how could this have happened to us? But I see it also in the godless broader society where people who have done all the right things suddenly come up against the absolute irreducibility of certain aspects of human experience that simply will not go away. One of them being is that people get hurt, they get old, they get sick, they die. And that you can't completely hide this with drugs and excellent nursing and hospices and highly trained undertakers. It can't be entirely hidden away. The beauty of life is one thing, but the awfulness of life, the terrifying dark side of life, intrudes. And it's as rude as an uncouth drunk wandering into an elegant restaurant and sitting down and eating with his hands and slurping. The dark side of life crashes into their lovely homes and crashes into their lives. I've seen that happen to people. Now this, this thing has happened to me too in the sense that I am a person of faith, but that doesn't spare me and we've had losses in our family and, and difficulties and every family does. I suppose what I'm worried about more is that the believers now have less and less faith to deal with this and the non-believers have no faith at all. They've already killed God, right? And now what they have committed to, what they have put all their hopes on has betrayed them is that they get to an old age and then the things would be ended quietly and painlessly somewhere. But that's not how it works. And so, let's say a 14-year-old in their family gets cancer or a young person in their family takes their own life. And to say, as Solzhenitsyn says, that things are painful for them is to say almost nothing. They have put their faith in God. They have put their faith in the world. They have put their faith in the modern age. They have put their faith in everything. And the believer and non-believer are left in the rags of their respective arrangements staring at each other. As Christ was on Golgotha, battered, tortured, rejected. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now how do we preach to that? How do we preach to a broken-hearted society? How do we preach to a society killing itself to forget that it's on the edge of things? and then absolutely staggered when it discovers it's on the edge of things, rushing into this, that and the other to try to dull the pain or whatever. How, how, how do we preach that society? And how do we preach to the believers who are in the middle of them and who, like the Jews with the Canaanites all around them, are constantly tempted to sink back into the old ways, the flesh pots and the taskmasters of Egypt, to sink into secular views of things and to live for the day? And then how do we talk to the faithful who resist that and who are faithful and loyal in spite of all of that and yet the wicked prosper in spite of all that and they suffer. What do we say to that? And I'm uneasily reminded of Cormac McCarthy, that powerful modern novelist, his novel Sutri, where the eponymous hero is wandering through a town. He's ended up down on his luck and he's living on the roads. And he, he happens to see a priest in the middle of his troubles. He sees a priest. It must have been a building of a few stories. 
and the priest is standing behind a window looking down on him on the pavement. And it's not that the priest is looking down on him, but that the priest is behind glass and the priest is unreachable and he can't reach him. I'm reminded again the same thing. Brian Freel, Philadelphia, Here I Come, the play, where the, the main character, Gar, has two personae, Gar public, Gar private. It's a very nice way of, of doing things in a play. It gives an awful lot of flexibility. And so the public has a public life in the small, almost suffocating little Irish town in which he lives and which he's now about to leave. He's a young man. He's going to emigrate to America. But the private Gar talks openly to the audience about what's going on. And the private guard shouts at the canon, the parish priest with whom the family are friendly. Say something, canon. Why don't you interpret this first? Isn't it your job to translate all this pain? Isn't it your job to translate? So the priest behind glass, the priest literally in another world who can't hear the private person calling to them. The priests now have to be willing. The priests and the lay Catholics of, who have an apostolic calling, who have deep faith, they have to be willing to go into this shadow land, into the liminal area. They have to be willing to go into people's suffering, which is happening at many different levels, and be able to talk to that suffering. It's either that or the church is finished in Ireland for the next few generations, and maybe for good. Because just remember, the Catholic Church believes itself to be indefectible, which is that it will not betray Christ. Something of the Church will always be there for all of history, but it is not indefectible in any one culture or place. North Africa was once a thriving Catholic area. Now, leadership studies, modern leadership studies tell us that the leader should never be too far ahead of his people or her people because that makes them incomprehensible and makes them look weird. So if the leader is brilliantly clever, it's best to hide it to an extent. Because people don't quite trust somebody who's so far ahead of them. It's an interesting point. And I would, I would just point out to you that that means that to lead in this place, to lead people whose faith is battered, to lead people who are barely hanging on in their faith, to lead people who have given up their faith, who have the blood of God on their hands, figuratively speaking, to lead people on both sides who are betrayed regularly, as it were. The believer will always be betrayed because this life is hard and the cross is unavoidable. And the cross is betrayal. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city who stoned the prophets. The cross is betrayal. And the cross is a part of the life of the believer. And yet the non-believer, having abandoned the whole thing and killed God, is still stuck with the cross, just in another form. And is now left scrabbling to find the grave of God. To try to find a faith of some kind. And, you know, I don't think it's, it's too far-fetched to say, then you have Black Lives Matter and, and all the, this secular religion with its orthodoxy and its heresies and all the rest of it. It is only a suffering God who can talk to these people. It's only a suffering priest who can explain the suffering of God because God suffers in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, God can't suffer. But in Jesus Christ, God suffers. God walks with us on the edge. The priest, the layperson, must be a man or woman of sorrows, however lightly they wear that, with whatever joke and smile and good humour and wit and all those are necessary. They are a person of sorrows. It is only a sufferer who can lead in this. Because you are talking to people 
who have discovered either all over again or for the very first time that like Peg, they have one foot in the grave and the other on the edge. That their lives are actually on the crumbling edge of reality. To witness to them, to witness to those who in Solzhenitsyn's phrase have a life or experience pain at a level that to even say that things were painful for them was to say almost nothing. To speak to them, and I'm thinking particularly just at the moment in terms of addiction, in terms of suicide, in terms of depression, of terrible illness. That stuff, right? That stuff. To preach to that world, only a sufferer can go in there. Only a sufferer can go in there. If you don't have the wound, you can't preach to them. St. Brendan, if you ever prayed for us before, pray for us now. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.